Jesus is preparing to send out his disciples into the various cities and villages in the Galilean region for the purpose of doing the work of ministry. You think there might be some application for us there? Jesus is making a trans Matthew's making a transition in his gospel where Jesus is preparing to send his disciples into the various cities and villages in the Galilean region for the very purpose of doing gospel ministry. And in seeing this transition in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is wrapping up a section and concluding a section there of, on Jesus's divine authority. We've seen that in chapters 8 and 9 very, very explicitly where he was healing sick, raising dead, all sorts of supernatural power was flowing through Jesus to multitudes of people, all of which validated his messianic credentials that he was the one come from God in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. Matthew also showed us very effectively in chapters 8 and 9, just um, what a day in the life of the ministry of Jesus was like. Uh, when you're the miracle worker, no days off, right? I mean, he had to leave a crowd, cross the sea to get to the other side to try to have a bit of respite, and then the only respite that he might have had on the sea, he fell asleep briefly but before being awakened. And so for the person that we've seen so far in this role of teaching, preaching, doing miracles has been Jesus exclusively. But when we get to chapter 10, it's apparent that Jesus has managed to get some time away from the crowds in order to focus on his disciples. Matthew's going to show us now how Jesus focuses in on them and then ultimately commissions these disciples for their very public ministry that will last for the duration of their lives. Such is the beauty of discipleship and following Jesus, right? Which also we're going to discover in Matthew's gospel here in chapter 10, it begins a time known as the training of the 12, where Jesus starts training and equipping these 12 disciples of his for uh, what ministry would soon look like after he was crucified, buried, raised, and then ascended back to the Father when they would need to continue doing the advancement of gospel ministry yet now on their own. It's a time for these chosen 12 to enter into the school of Christ and to get their training for their upcoming apostolic ministry. Let's get started. Notice how Matthew does this. Look at verse 36 in chapter 9. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So after the countless hundreds of people who were physically healed or had demons cast out of them, we have Jesus here. Notice what it says there at the very beginning. Seeing the crowds. And as he looked out over the multitude of people while he's with his disciples, looking out, seeing the crowds. We see that Jesus, it says, feels compassion for them because it seems that he could still see an infinitely greater need in their lives that far surpassed any physical healing of blind eyes, perpetual bleeding, or deaf ears. Look again at the purpose statement here in verse 36. And seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because... 
Here's our, here's our purpose statement. Because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. It didn't say because there were still so many people in need of healing. It didn't say that Jesus looked out in the crowds, he saw so many people who were lame and sick and blind and deaf and dumb and they were in need of his healing. It doesn't say that. It says he, was, he felt compassion for them specifically because he saw in them something of a greater need than their physical need alone. Jesus looks beyond the temporal needs that these people had, which oftentimes is the only need that distressed and downcast people themselves are able to see. Which, if we're honest, people today aren't much different, are we? We see the same thing today. So many people clamoring for the outward miraculous signs that they think Jesus needs to bring them. And that's about all they can talk about oftentimes is the miraculous. Jesus is looking beyond that. There's been countless multitudes, hundreds of individuals whom he has healed at this point in time. It doesn't even list them all. It just talks about the size of the crowd, and it says, and he healed them all. When Jesus sees them, he sees beyond that, and he feels compassion because they're distressed, they're downcast. He sees the, so the condition of their sick souls, which truly made them distressed and downcast, even greater than whatever physical ailment they may have had. And it's for this reason that Jesus describes them here as sheep without a shepherd. Now those who would have claimed to have been their shepherds, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of their day, what we know about them is that they've already rejected Christ and his message. They've already rejected the Son of God who came in fulfillment of their sacred scriptures. Uh, they, said that, they said that Jesus was doing his signs and wonders from the power of the ruler of the demons. That's, that's what their shepherds were saying about the man, Jesus. Jesus could see this. And in seeing this, it says he thus felt compassion for them. Now, let me elaborate a little bit on this idea of feeling compassion for them. Our Greek word here for compassion is from uh, this word right here. You ready for this one? I think it's something like spelonknazomai. Sounds like some kind of an allergy condition. But it's to experience great affection and compassion for someone. To feel compassion for, to have great affection for, love, compassion. We, in the, in the West, we think of compassion differently than the ancients did and those in the East. This word, in its verbal form, comes to us from the noun splankna. Listen Listen to this. Splankna as a noun refers very literally to the bowels or intestines of a person as being the place, again, that ancient people would, asso would associate very strong emotions with. If you've ever experienced intense emotions like anxiety or fear or pity or remorse or 
such of those kinds of emotions, where does that oftentimes and always hit you? Right in the gut. It's something you what? It's something you feel. I can still remember whenever I played, even though it's been many years, when I used to play basketball in high school, before every game, we used to call it butterflies. Like before a game, before a, a competition, you'd get butterflies. Anybody ever experienced butterflies before a competition? Every game, just the thought of getting in the, in the, on the court and the high level of competition, the desire to want to do well, to win, etc., it hits you in the gut. You feel it right down in the gut. So understanding the noun and then using that as a way to better understand this verb form of splunk nasomai, Jesus says that this is what he felt. He felt this for the people. This lets us know that what he saw these people being distressed and downcasts, it hit Jesus really hard in the gut, physically. It made him somewhat physically sick to see the state of people who for so many years now, perhaps centuries, yea, millennia, who have abandoned the word of God, the nation of Israel, and as such, he said, were like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus saw these people, it made him physically sick to his stomach. He felt compassion for them. He felt in his body the very real symptoms of his genuine care and concern for those whom he came to save. The scriptures teach us that Jesus did come to lay his life down for whom? His sheep. He would see they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knew that he came to lay his life down for the very flock of God. And what he saw that day made him sick to his stomach, but probably all the more determined to do and accomplish the will of the Father who had sent him on this great redemptive mission. Isn't that good? So the, the question kind of becomes to us as he's about to be training his 12, the question that I want to ask us is, do we feel compassion for lost people? Do we feel a little bit sickened in our gut when we walk around in 2023 and we, and we understand that there are lost people out there who need the Lord? Do we feel compassion for people in, this, in a similar way that Jesus felt compassion for these people, these sheep without shepherd? Do we, do we live in light of the fact that there are children of God out there, potential sheep, we don't know who they are, and they're without the Lord, and unless we become those who go out into the, into the harvest, which we're about to get to in this passage... They need the preaching of the gospel because it's through the preaching of the gospel that people get saved. We need to have compassion. We need to feel a little bit sick to our stomach knowing that there are brothers and sisters, there's lost sheep out there who have yet to come to know Jesus Christ and we need to be compelled to do something about that. Amen? And so Jesus begins unveiling his plan for how he's going to now reach these sheep. Notice Verse 37, verse 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, contextually, it's clear that the harvest here, which is said to be plentiful, is a reference to the crowds for whom Jesus feels compassion. 
Those who are distressed and downcast with, like sheep without shepherd. These distressed people constitute this harvest. And like any harvest, we understand there's a need to have an ingathering from that harvest, right? That's what you do with a harvest. You, you ingather that harvest. But as Jesus points out to his disciples, workers are few. So if these large crowds of people are likened unto a plentiful harvest, what we discern here is that Jesus' earthly ministry is the necessary means by which these people are to hear about the gospel of the kingdom. Hear about their need of repentance from sin, which obviously was in violation of God's holy standards if they were ever to gain entrance into the very kingdom over which Jesus the Messiah will rule. And we've seen in Matthew's gospel so far from both the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist that repentance happens in response to preaching, in response to teaching. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus preached and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then back in Matthew 3, 1 through 2, John the Baptist was saying the same thing before him. John the Baptist came preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But so far, other than these two, there hasn't really been anyone else out there preaching or teaching this message of repentance that sinners are in desperate need of hearing because the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. Which is why Jesus says again here at the end of verse 37, the workers are few. It's only been John the Baptist and himself. Now, I'm sure you paid close attention to whom he said this to, right? He said this to his disciples. Jesus is telling his disciples that these massive crowds in the regions of Galilee are likened again to this plentiful harvest of lost souls who need to hear the gospel. He needs workers. They're few. Now, by workers in this harvest of souls, what Jesus is in essence saying is that he needs disciples who are willing to be gospel ministers who will go out sharing the gospel of the kingdom and being workers within this harvest to sheep who need King Jesus as their shepherd. Amen? That's, in essence, I'm kind of paraphrasing there instead of the, um, what's that really, paraphrased Bible? The, the Ben Avert translation, thank you. Somebody said it. But yeah, I was kind of filling in some of the cracks there. But that's what Jesus is saying to him. So notice what Jesus viewed as the remedy to this problem. Look at verse 38. Therefore what? Pray. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. It seems to kind of go in hand with Jesus feeling sick to his stomach over seeing people who are in desperate need of a shepherd. He says to his disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. Whose harvest is it? It's the Lord's harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Well, we can say God's the Lord of the harvest, the children of God. Jesus is God, is thus it's his harvest. He's the great shepherd who's going to ingather his sheep. Jesus is here telling his disciples that they need to pray to him, the Lord of the harvest, to ask him, the master of the harvest, to send out workers into his own very harvest. So prayer seems to be Jesus' first instruction. And so if we perhaps took that upon ourselves, if we look upon ourselves and we see that we're lacking in our 
earnestness and or compassion towards being workers in the harvest that's still out there today that is still plentiful perhaps we need to pray and we need to ask the Lord to send workers i.e. me in other words Lord change my heart that I would be more compassionate for lost people who need to know Jesus so they don't perish forever Jesus is in need of willing laborers, workers, to get the gospel to these masses there in the regions and villages and cities of Galilee. And then when we get to the book of Acts, he's going to tell them that they need to take it to the uttermost parts of the world. He starts internal, he starts where they are, and then he's going to say, take it to the world. These crowds there in Galilee, they've been following them around every day. And so when we get to verse 38 here and we connect it with what Jesus said he was going to do in the life of his disciples all the way back in chapter 4, verse 19, where he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's reasonable here to see that Jesus is asking these disciples of his to pray to him, the Lord of the harvest, to send them out into his harvest for the purpose of being heralds of the good news. Now's the time for them to take up their responsibility as fishers of men, as harvesters of people who are distressed and downcast like sheep without shepherd and to be actively engaged in the building of the kingdom of heaven. And the means by which God is going to bring his sheep into this fold is by means of gospel proclamation from people who, like Jesus, feel sick to their stomach knowing that there are still yet children of God in this world who are currently distressed, downcast, and needing Jesus to be their great shepherd. It seems that the Apostle Paul picked up on this principle of Jesus very clearly over here in Romans chapter 10. Just listen to how Paul almost echoes what Jesus is doing with his disciples because he says right here in 10.13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But, what? Well, and again, I'm just dropping into a context. Go back and read all of chapter 10. Read the whole, God, the whole book of Romans if you want. But what? Um, he, they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But what? But how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? In other words, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to find salvation in the name of the Lord exclusively. You have to call on his name, but if you don't know his name, if you don't know of him in whom you need to believe in, how can you then therefore believe? And how will you be able to believe in him if you haven't heard about him? And how will they hear about him without preachers? And this, by the way, preacher here isn't what I'm doing today on Sunday morning. When you see without a preacher, you're thinking, well, I, I, I can't do what you do. I can't stand up in front of a congregation. That, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about being a herald of the good news. As you become those who have these beautiful feet, and how will they preach unless they have been sent? What's Jesus going to be doing for us right here in chapter 10? He's commissioning his disciples, and he's going to be sending them out, beginning their apostolic ministry. And how will they preach unless they are sent? 
just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. Listen, from heaven's perspective, do you want to be known as those with beautiful feet for the Lord? To hear the well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, I think that's all of our heart's desire, right? One of the ways we do that exclusively is we become heralders of the gospel of Jesus Christ every opportunity we're given. Amen? And such is the glory of the Christian life. And such is the challenge of gospel living. Now, do this exercise. Briefly think about yourself. I know you rarely do that, but on occasion you need to. Briefly think about yourself and, and your personal engagement in this meta-narrative of God's redemptive plan in history and your personal engagement in that even right now. And then ask yourself, do you think that perhaps there might be an adversary, the devil out there, who slings arrows into your mind to convince you that there's so many other things that you need to be doing instead of the one thing of seeking first the kingdom of heaven and God's righteousness? Do you think that maybe you're under spiritual warfare every single day, dampening your spirit to not be sensitive to opportunities to have beautiful feet and to step into a conversation, step into a relationship in order for the purpose of proclaiming the good news of good things? You think? I'm absolutely convinced that that is happening in each one of God's children's lives every single day, and we need to be cognizant of that, and we need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Because there are still lost sheep out there that need to hear the gospel. Amen? You are possessors of that gospel. Let your light shine, church. Let it shine. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, I'm going to wax on that just one last time. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 of God's desire for all to come to repentance. That's one of those passages that uncomfortably steps on toes of Calvinists. And so we have to kind of give definition to the word all and we come you know. but listen I think what we need to do is we need to hear the voice of the spirit in what this is saying this is God's desirative will there's a difference between that and his decreative will we don't have time for that theology lesson right now but just listen God's heart Jesus wanted to say he felt compassion for the people now did he have glasses on that when he put them on all of a sudden you know like um, Iron Man you know it just started highlighting and putting like um, halos over the heads of the elect. I don't think so. I think Jesus is looking out over the swath of humanity and he feels compassion for every single one of them. He didn't get into a discussion about elect, non-elect, and all these things. It's about the, 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 innerals, the, the innards of, of who he was. And, and God embodies that because God's desire is for all people to come to repentance. And so as we grow... In the grace of our Lord Jesus, it would seem that we too would embrace such godlike desires and be ever more inclined to share the gospel of which we are not ashamed, knowing that everyone who repents and believes will thus be saved from the soon coming wrath of the day of the Lord. Wouldn't that be great? 
Wouldn't that be great if all people would repent and be saved from the coming day of the wrath of the Lord? Amen? Now, just for one second, I think everybody put down their political biases and agreed. Because sometimes we look at our political biases and our enemies and we think, I don't know, (laughs) hell is made for people just like you. We do, don't we? Let's just be honest. We do these things. But such were some of you, but you were washed. We look at unsaved people, and the adversary has us strap them down with labels, earthly labels, that causes us to want to distance ourselves and be enemies from them, instead of wrapping them with a gospel wrapping and say, that person needs the Lord. They're saying crazy stuff. They're killing innocent babies. They're doing all kinds of immoral things. They clearly are deceived by doctrines of demons, and they need to be... What was Jesus doing? He was setting people free from who? From demons. We need to grow in our capacity to desire that all people would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, or we may be numbed or anesthetized to our gospel mission when we go out there because we don't think in gospel mission terms. We think in political terms. We're so wrapped up in this world and this political system. Listen, go back and listen to my series on the book of Daniel. We know for a fact that a one-world government is coming. And you can't stop it. Try to stop it. You're going to be fighting against God Almighty. But what we can do, here's my caveat, you ready? But what we can do is that in our day, we can stand for righteousness and we can have righteous indignation against things that are immoral and evil. We can do both of those simultaneously. And how you do that is you stop labeling your enemies in political or other kinds of stripes and you see them through a gospel lens and you have a desire because you have compassion for lost people because you too once were lost and we're going to face the wrath of God. And so we get out there and we drop all those meaningless labels and we share the love of Jesus Christ with everyone because we have a whosoever will believe gospel. Amen, church? That's it, period. Now, all of a sudden, my Baptist roots are coming out in me. I'm like, everybody, if you want to do this, come stand right up here on this stage. Just come on right up here with me. Get on this platform and let's pray. And then let's say amen and go home. We've had church. (laughs) Because this is is so true, church. And, and, And we've especially in the Bible church, we get labeled as just being all head knowledge. They're just all into head knowledge. They're not interested in people. They just love the scriptures. They just love the Bible. Bible, Bible, Bible. That's all they want to do is talk about the Bible. And do, do we love the word of God? Yes, it's our authority. We stand on it. In grace, we stand. We stand on the word of God. It's immovable. It's like a rock. Of course we do. But if we ever get so cold and callous that we don't feel compassion for people, we've missed the meaning of the scriptures we stand on. We can do both, church. And here at Jinx Bible, let's pray. Let's pray. Pray. Somewhere back here. I don't want to go back too far. Pray. Lord, here we are. Send us. Send us. Where am I? What time is it? Well, it's 11.14. I got about five minutes. I've only got five more pages. Let's go. 
speed preach. Now, think about this. Logically speaking, uh, we might be inclined to ask ourselves things like, how could anyone else effectively do what Jesus is doing? Right? I mean, we've been seeing Jesus' ministry. Logically speaking, how could we expect ourselves to do that if what Jesus is doing is called laboring in the harvest, how could any of us be expected to imitate that? I mean, after his teaching and preaching ministry, he went throughout and he was doing things that had never been seen done before in Israel, like healing the sick, cleansing the leper, calming winds and waves, casting out demons, raising the dead, and without discrimination and in large numbers. Again, just a little... I'm feeling it, that little feeling thing you get, butterfly. Have you seen anybody in 2023 doing this? And I don't mean here in America, because you're going to some people say, oh, but in America it's different. Have you seen anybody anywhere on planet Earth, and by the way, we're connected with what? Satellites, you pull up your phone. Have you seen anybody like Jesus in 2023 Massive crowds following them around, and every single one of them, every disease, every infirmity being healed. The, am the answer is obvious, and there's no need to squirmish about it. The answer is no, and that's okay. Sometimes my charismatic friends, they get so uptight about cling clinging on to their charismatic preciouses, which is miraculous signs and wonders and healings. Why? Do you think that I would have any care if this was happening today, I would be rejoicing and praising the name of Jesus the loudest. Why wouldn't I? And why wouldn't you? It would be the, the very obvious, the very natural thing to do, wouldn't it? To give glory to God for doing what Jesus did here. Well, this is what Jesus, in essence, um, can you imagine being one of these 12? And he's about to say, hey, I need you to guys to go out there and be my right-hand guy and do what I'm doing, right? Well, we're going to see exactly how Jesus goes about doing that. Look at 10.1, in Matthew 10.1, summoning his 12 disciples. Jesus, oh, here it is right here. Jesus gave them. Oh, and it very specifically is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we see a particular number given to disciples. And so we see a limiting aspect in here. So while there may have been more disciples following Jesus around, there may have been more than 12, we know that Jesus specifically selected 12 disciples who would become 12 apostles to be those who followed him. As a matter of fact, wait a second, wait, wait, never mind. We'll get there in 10 too. He also parlays in that word apostleship. Matthew obviously is writing after the fact. We'll get there in a second. But he narrows uh, the summoning of these men. He summons these 12 disciples. Jesus gave them disciples, those 12 that he summoned, authority. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of sickness and every kind of disease without hesitation. So how these 12 are going to go out and do what Jesus is doing so that they don't look... I mean, who? if Jesus didn't do this and he sends these 12 out in twos, which he's about to do, who among the crowds are going to follow these 12 if they don't have the ability to do what Jesus is doing? They're flocking to Jesus primarily because of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness and spirits were being cast out of them 
with the authority that Jesus had. Are you going to follow the man, the healer man, Jesus, or are you going to go following Peter all of a sudden who can't do that? Who are you following? You're following Jesus. But all of a sudden, if he sends out a pack of six and twos, and they have the same authority and the ability to do everything that Jesus was doing, and you're on the outside skirts of that large crowd, and you're having a hard time getting to Jesus, you might peel off and go over and see John, or Peter, or Thaddeus, Right? Because what you're interested in, your lower need, is that of a physical healing. You're still maybe missing the reality that you can be healed once and die later and go to hell, and it did you absolutely no good. And so they went out with a preaching, teaching ministry, and Jesus gave them the ability to do the very things that he himself was doing. And I love this word summoning here. Man, I'm I'm running out of time right here. This word summoning of his 12, proskaleo. This verb, um, to urgently invite someone to accept responsibilities for a particular task, implying in that a new relationship to the one, Jesus, who does the calling. That's kind of a long definition in this lexicon here, right? That's, again, so yeah, Bible church, you got to turn your brain on. We like to look at words because that, that just highlights the scripture. But are you, are you seeing some of the significance of this summoning here? This, this summoning here um, is what uh, most people refer to as Jesus' official commissioning of these 12 disciples to their ministry office of apostleship. This summoning Uh, right here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Now, notice there's a gloss in this lexicon after the definition. And notice what this gloss says about uh, proskaleo. It is rare that one can translate, and here it's got kaleo, so you've got pros in front of it. It's two parts of, of, of the word coming together in our proskaleo. So you've got kaleo, Kalesis, and then this really long one, I won't say that, but Kalesis and Proskaleomai as simply to call. No, notice, it's rare, and you pick up on this, it is rare, rare that one can translate this verb we're talking about, summons, as simply to call. In the sense of to speak to someone at a distance and tell them to come, simply. In other words, this summoning, which is what I'm calling a commissioning, and the reason why it's important to understand this commissioning is because he also gave these guys authority to do the very supernatural things that he himself was doing and exclusively to the 12. So this isn't like if I said, hey, Wayne, I see you back there. Wayne, why don't you come here? I got something to tell you. That'd be like, that'd be like a calling. I'm calling Wayne, right? Hey, Wayne, hey, Wayne, come here. That's not what proskaleo is. It'd be like, hey, Wayne. I need you to get up here because I got a very specific task I need you to take care of. And I'm saying it in such a way that you really kind of realize this isn't an option. This isn't like an optional request I'm making of you, Wayne. And by the way, and this, is a, this breaks down our, the analogy because Jesus being the Lord, right? I mean, he's the Lord and he's talking to his disciples and they're seeing him do all kinds of stuff. So you, you just put that in the context. He's saying to these guys, hey, I need, he's summoning them to himself and he's giving them what? He's giving them an urgent invite. 
to be fishers of men in the harvest of lost souls in the spreading of the gospel and the building of the kingdom of heaven. And they need to realize that this particular task that he's called them to, the implication of this relationship is that he's boss, he's the master. So when, so when Wayne shows up here and I give Wayne that very particular task, Wayne doesn't start saying, yeah, but I think I got a better way to do it. Well, you know, really, if I did it this way, it might be done faster. Now, if, if Wayne and I are talking about, you know, fixing my, mo- my, my lawnmower, I would just, whatever Wayne wanted to do, I'd do. But in this case with Jesus, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm calling you to a very specific task. I'm the boss. I'm the master. I'm the Lord. You're going to do it exactly the way I'm telling you to do it. As a matter of fact, throughout the relationships and every one of the epistles, what do we see? Every one of these disciples, these apostles, refer to themselves as slaves and Jesus as their master. They got it. They very clearly got the idea of summoning here. And it's such a key term and it's such a key element of what Jesus did in their lives. It's important that we understood that as well. Notice in Ephesians 2, Paul picked up on this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're not talking about prophets right now. We're talking about apostles. So these apostles, these 12 that Jesus called to himself in Matthew chapter 10, they became, after this summoning and the particular call that he gave them and the authority that he gave them, he's calling them to be his disciples, followers of his, who will complete the mission, that redemptive mission that God sent him on because he's going to be crucified, buried, raised, and ascended back to heaven, and these guys are going to be the ones left to take care of that task. Isn't that great? And I'm going to stop right here. I got more. I've got, I got more. And it's, it's good. Oh, I, I'm feeling a hatred of having to stop right now, but I'm looking at the clock when you throw in the baptismal service. It's been a, it has, it's been a glorious day. Praise, praise the Lord. I would have liked to finish. I'm going to pick up right here. Right here. I'm picking up right here next week on the summoning and their, their apostleship. I'm going to flesh that out just a little bit so you can kind of get a feel for the significance of what's happening here in Matthew 10.1 because then as we move forward in Matthew's gospel through chapter 10 to chapter 11, you start seeing that phrase I've referred to as the training of the 12. Jesus is preparing these guys for ministry for when he goes away. And then at some point when we get to 28, we're going to kind of bring that all back into unison with the fact that we are now a part of this grand design. But we individually, personally, were not granted that same granting authority that Jesus gave to his 12. So we should not be delusioned into thinking that we are going to have the ability to do what they did. There's a lot of questions involving this. I can't handle them all right now. But hopefully I've piqued your interest. And you'll be back next week and we'll pick up and keep going.